Good morning, Acts chapter 21. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me there. Uh, what a neat, what a neat time of worship. Thank you, our brother Matt, for leading us and for ladies sharing in special music. Um, we are so grateful for the opportunity that God has given to us to just offer back as an offering um, to him our words of adoration and our words of appreciation. A um, little bit of snow out there and you hearty souls made it. I commend you. I think it's fitting. It's appropriate. Hopefully you've got some rugged kind of boots on, some rugged shoes or hikers on today, because in our text, we are going to be moving. OK, uh, chapter 21 of the book of Acts, chapter 22, chapter 23 and chapter 24. We'll see how this works. OK, by way of a little bit of a survey of this text, what we're going to do here is the reason that we can handle a, a chunk in our in our study in the book of Acts, the church in action so much is because the, the, the events that are relatively isolated in one area. Uh, just so that you know, before we pray, what's going to happen here is Paul moves from Miletus, where we left him last week, into Jerusalem, goes through a purification process, goes to the temple to worship, and then all, everything just breaks loose. Okay, we're going to turn a corner in the book of Acts, where Paul actually becomes a prisoner from here on out, and it gets dicey for Paul. We'll see that he literally is passed from the Jews to the Romans. The Romans don't know what to do with him. He passed back to the Jews. They don't know what to do. He's passed back to the Romans. Nobody knows what to do with this man. They just know they don't like him. They don't want him there. Throughout this message as well, the wonderful reminder to you and I is that just like Paul, we belong to the Lord. If you are here this morning, you have acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as the only means of our salvation, his his atoning, redeeming work on the cross. You live every day as as him being Lord of your life. Let me tell you this. And this is a great reminder from this text. You are safe in his hands. Does it mean there's not going to be difficult times? No, you'll see that very clearly. But this idea here in God's sovereignty, and Paul reminds us of it, that, that as people who belong to the Lord, literally we are his own possession. He, 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 he guards every single step. He gives to us every single word to say. And we get a glimpse here in Scripture, and to me, I breathe a huge sigh of relief to say, Lord, thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that you direct us every single step. Change the culture, change the languages, change the date on the calendar. I tell you what, people are people, sin is sin. And the exact same thing that Paul has been called to do, guess what? You and I are called to do right here in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania. There is no difference. We need to pray for the souls of mankind. And we pray that their eyes, their blindness would be opened up to see their own sinfulness, and receive the message of the gospel. It is an amazing responsibility. And this text to me has been a breath of fresh air of, Lord, thank you for your love and your care and concern for this man, but also for you and I. A little bit of a survey as far as where we are going, just so that you understand as far as we're not going to read four solid chapters. Okay, time will not allow that. 
um, but we're going to read portions of it all the way through. Got your hikers on, okay? You're good to go. Let's pray as we get into God's Word in just a moment. Father, I am so grateful that you have allowed us this opportunity on this day to be in your house, to enjoy the presence of your Spirit, to enjoy, Lord, time together in lifting up our voices in praise to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time of the year that we celebrate you coming, leaving all of the throne of glory and coming here to live amongst us. God with us. And we thank you for that. Father, in the day that you have called us, it is a challenging time, no doubt. But Paul ministered in challenging times. Lord, as, as Paul prays for the souls of mankind, and we seek, Lord, him as an example in our ministry, I pray, Lord, that we would daily, that we would diligently pray for the lost souls of men and women around us. God, I would pray that you would give to us a love for those in our community. I pray, Lord, that you would give to me an increased amount of love for those that are lost in this community. God, set um, our path before us so that we know specifically um, where we are to go, how we are to move, what we are to say, so that you would be glorified. Father, I I pray for other churches in this community that I know, brothers that are preaching the the truth of the gospel. Um, Uplift them today. Um, empower them, encourage them, help us together to understand what our role is as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, as we look today at, at this, this bio of a, a prisoner, a man of God, I pray, Lord, that we would understand that we too are prisoners like Paul of Jesus. God, help us to live in light of that truth. Bless our time. May you be glorified. May you guard my lips and my my mouth, my words, that I would not say anything that would not bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. That is is our prayer, my prayer this morning. Guide us in this time. In your name we ask. Amen. And amen. We're going to read um, in just a few moments Acts 21. We'll start in verse 17 and read down through verse 21, just so that you're prepared for that. Last time we were together, we left Paul. If you recall, he was at the docks in Miletus after having been meeting with the Ephesian elders. Literally, they are tearing themselves apart from one another. They love one another. There have been hugs and kisses and well wishes. There have been tears. Before Paul left, he says this, I don't know what will happen to me except that what imprisonments and afflictions await. Last, last week we talked about the fact that if we know that if we head that direction, it's going to be pain. Okay, what we generally do. Generally, we're going to move the exact opposite. Paul moves. He sails right into the storm. He Goes. He sails from Miletus. It says in Scripture that he moves to Kos and then to Rhodes and then Patira. And he realizes that he's on what's called the slow boat. Okay. Paul struggles at times, I think, with with being patient 
and he says this is too slow of a journey. He's on the um, he's on the local as opposed to the express lane, and they're stopping at every single little port, and he's frustrated by that. So he says, I need a bigger boat, and he takes a larger boat and sails from that point onto Phoenicia, which is a 400 mile voyage. So he says, enough of the little stuff. It's taking too long. We got places to go. He sails on to Phoenicia, and then he visits believers in Tyra and then Caesarea, and he finally makes the 65-mile hike on foot to Jerusalem. Paul teaches us many things. He teaches us about the importance of being a bold, clear truth teller. He's a pastor, preacher, church planner, missionary, author, but he remains on task. I find that we get easily distracted in today's world. There's a lot of things that vie for our attention. Paul remains on focus. He teaches us what to be self-disciplined. He's driven, and yet still he displays humility in his ministry. And a sensitivity to other people. A lot of times individuals that are so driven, they lose sight of others. Paul does not. He literally is praying and weeping for the souls of mankind. Today we will get a glimpse that that he acts and reacts under pressure, completely controlled by the Holy Spirit, because we know he is suppressed as a prisoner A lot of times, you and I, when things are sailing smooth, we are the most godly, precious individuals in the entire world. Let the storms come, and what happens? We become miserable. If I'm miserable, I want everyone to be miserable around me. Paul's not like that. He teaches us how to behave and respond under pressure. And as I said earlier, this is a major turning point in the book of Acts for Paul. From now on, he will be well-versed as a prisoner, not only of Rome, but a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Common language in Paul's writings. He says this in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in, in, in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Philemon, in chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is common language for him. Second Timothy, chapter 1, he says, there's, there's been um, an individual, Nesmus, who is not ashamed of my... My chains. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. We know later on in 2 Corinthians, he says, I have experienced far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received 40 less, one lashes, three times beaten with rods. Once I was stones. In total, we will see from this point onward that Paul will spend somewhere between five and a half to six years As a prisoner, five and a half to six years as a prisoner in Caesarea and also in Rome, periods of under house arrest. We know that while he is in prison, he accomplishes much Four prison epistles. The book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians and Philemon were written all in prison, the prison epistles. There's one pastoral epistle, second Timothy, that is written from a prison cell, the Mamertine prison. 
We see as well, I want you to understand that when we refer to Paul as a prisoner or locked up, this is entirely different than what you and I think of. If you ever watch the, the, the show Lock Up or, or Chained Up or whatever the one is where there's people in jail and so you kind of follow them as they, they try to live as best as they can. This is not three hots in a cot. Okay, I was reading this week, one particular individual did a lot of research, Robert Frazier, on the prisons of Paul's world. Let me read to you a little bit of a description of what prison life was like for Paul, just so that we have in mind what he's enduring. Okay, often prisons of this kind were dug out of solid rock and they were actually underground. Prisoners, their guards and their provisions were actually lowered through an opening the size of a manhole. This manhole was the only means of entrance or exit. Already, I'm creeped out being underground. Okay, think of it. According to tradition, the prison in which Paul was held was also subterranean. It was located near the forum. This is the maritime prison in Rome that he spends a significant period of time in. The prison itself was essentially two large rooms on different levels with iron shackles fixed to the walls. The lower chamber was the Tertullium, or the Tullian Dungeon. The Roman historian Sullet writes, it was sunk about 12 feet underground, walls secure on every side, over it a vaulted roof connected with the stone arches, but its appearance is disgusting and horrible by reason of the filth and the darkness and the stench. These guards that would watch the prisoners were usually soldiers. Being a prison guard was not an appealing job and was often given to the poorest soldiers. Some of the guards were cruel. Under Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, the the guard was executed. This tended to make the guards cautious about their words, to say the least. Prisoners were manacled or shackled using different lengths of change, probably reflecting the security risk. The nature of the accusation and the attitude of the guards. A short chain could hold a prisoner continually upright, dependent upon others for everything. A longer chain might permit a prisoner to take a step or two from the wall or to sit or lie down. Some prisoners were placed in stocks where their ankles were held apart. These persons were forced to sit on the same filthy spot continually. What's interesting as well, and we'll deal with this later on, with visiting prisoners, we are instructed throughout Scripture to visit those that are in chains. And there's individuals, one Onesimus, who visited. You realize about the visitor? Visiting a prisoner could be dangerous. A prison visitor was no longer one of the anonymous crowd. Someone might associate the visitor with the alleged crimes of the accused. Thus, when early Christians obeyed their Lord and visited those who were in prison, they did not perform an inconvenient or an unpleasant act. They were let down into the prison by rope, and they were left only at the pleasure of the guards. Think about this. When you went to visit someone in prison, you were lowered down in, and you stayed there until the guard wanted to let you out. Think of that. And we're encouraged to behave in such a way. A little bit of a description as far as what Paul is experiencing when we refer to him as a prisoner. Not only of a prisoner of Rome, but he's what? He oftentimes refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why? Why is that? Jesus had actually captured Paul's heart. Jesus had apprehended Paul's heart. He could live in no other way 
than being confined or constrained by Jesus. That is exactly how you and I are called to live. Although we have freedom to move, we are to be constrained and confined by Jesus. Which means wherever Jesus directs and calls us to do, if He is Lord, we do what He wants us to do, not what we want to do. We see the commitment in Paul's words in chapter 21. We won't have the time to read it in verses 13 and 14 when Agabus, a prophet, actually prophesies what's going to happen to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. He's going to be bound and he's going to be turned over. And Paul responds like this, I am ready. Well, when you get there, it's going to be horrible. I am ready, Paul says, not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus, let his will be done. We've seen an amazing demonstration of trust and faith in the Lord. We are to allow the Lord to do exactly the same thing. Captivated, captured as a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but nothing terrifies me more than being locked up in a dark cell, chained to a wall, No freedoms. I have known individuals. I think of one precious friend of mine that I met years and years ago, Margarita Mednes. I I mentioned her to you before. She was a Holocaust survivor, and I would sit with her and listen to stories of what she endured during some of the worst concentration camps in World War II. You perhaps have read about John Bunyan and what he endured. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Louis Zamperini and Richard Warmbrands, the founder of Voice of Martyrs, individuals who have gone through some of the horrific, but they have what? Been able to do that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. We pick up as far as the the first major event, and that is the one that Paul arrives in Jerusalem. That's where his intent is. His goal is set. His eyes are set. His gate is fixed. I will get to Jerusalem. He arrives and initially is very warmly received, but Paul is quickly warned by James and the elders that he was gaining a reputation as an individual who is being against the law. He goes back into Jerusalem. This is where all the Jews are. And he says, you know what? You're getting a reputation as preaching a message. It says very specifically in, in Acts 21.21 that you're teaching all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. Paul does not want to be offensive. Okay, he has a message for the gospel, of the gospel, for Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't want to be offensive to Jews. And so he actually, while he visits, he goes through a purification ritual that any Jewish person would go to in order to prepare for temple worship. Think of it. Because he's been with Gentiles... He is now considered unclean. Think of that. Hanging around people like you and I as Gentiles. Just being in presence, eating with them, shaking their hand, sitting down. Paul is now ceremonially unclean. And he has to go through this purification process. And he does that. Doesn't want to cause a stir when he goes to temple worship, but that's exactly what happens. Pick it up in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. To greeting them, he related one by one the things that God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
When they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. Paul has clearly been preaching a message of grace, by grace through faith. And yet, because of that, people are suggesting that he is denying everything to do with his Jewish tradition. That's not it. Paul does not want to be offensive after he arrives in Jerusalem. Secondly, Paul is arrested when he goes to the temple. In the temple, there's a portion, okay, that actually is separating the court of the Gentiles from the other courts, which means as Gentiles came to that area, they could only go so far and then they could not cross a particular barrier. They actually have found an inscription in that particular region that read this, and I quote, No foreigner, no Gentile, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Think about it. Here's the line. Because you are not one of us, you cross the line. The consequence of crossing the line is death. I was in Palestine visiting Bethlehem a couple of months ago when we were visiting the Holy Land and there were checkpoints all over the place and some Palestinian car drove too far. They stopped but they, their front wheels crossed the line of where they were supposed to be. An Israeli soldier reached into the car, reached for the weapon, went into the car and shot and killed the driver because they crossed the line. Okay? Literally, we saw the riot that that ensued as a result of that. Okay, that's the type of, if you cross this line, there is trouble. Think about that as you head to church every single day. The Romans had actually given the Jews authority to take care of people who crossed the line. So although this is under Roman authority, if someone crossed it, they said, you can pretty much do with them what you want. What happens here is we pick up the scene in chapter 21, verse 30. You can, you can hear it for yourself. Because Paul went and people were upset because they thought he brought some Gentiles with him, which they had not, it says this, then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together, they seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains He inquired who he was, what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, so he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When Paul went to worship, he brought with him some young men, some followers, Christians. They had gone through the purification. They were Jewish people. It says very clearly, but because 
Paul earlier had been seen with one particular Gentile. His name was Trophimus, the Ephesian, it says in verse 29. Because they saw Paul at one time hanging out with a Gentile, they immediately said, well, he has crossed the line with someone who is unclean. It actually says in verse 29, they supposed Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, they immediately, in a sense, jump on him, pounce on him, to kill him. Now, normally they would have the authority to do that, but because it was such a big deal and there was such a crowd, it was actually beginning to look almost riotous so that Romans did not want things to get out of control. They're all about control, and so they actually stepped in. There's more than 1,000 Roman soldiers that are that are stationed at this particular location, the Antonio Fortress in the northwest corner of the temple area. A thousand Roman soldiers are there. The crowd is in such an uproar, such a frenzy. It's it's loud, it's chaotic and confusing and dangerous. It's actually so loud that when they ask Paul a question, who are you, what are you doing, they can't even hear him. And so that's when it says, as we read, that they, in a sense, are going to lead him into the barricades, which leads us to our third point where Paul addresses the crowd from the steps of the temple. Excuse me. Steps of the barricade. At his arrest, they bound him, which we saw that. He's already been beat. Because of the security risk, they actually use two chains. They begin to ask him the questions. And because the crowd is pressing on him, Paul, in a sense, says, well, can I say something Can I actually speak to you? And we see the scene unfurl before him. It says in verses 37 and down through 40, as Paul says, can I say something? They respond, well, do you know Greek? Because that's the the language, the learned language of the Roman people. And before he can even answer that question, they said, well, aren't you the Egyptian who stirred up the crowd? In all honesty, the Romans who have arrested him who stepped in, didn't even know for sure who this guy was. They actually thought he was some kind of an Egyptian terrorist. Paul says this, he goes, no, I'm actually a Jew, and I beg you to permit me to speak to the people. Now, what's interesting here, as an example for you and I, is that Paul uses every single opportunity he can get to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is given an opportunity right here, as he in a sense is being let out in the steps, okay, he actually begins to speak. I think that you and I have to be more aggressive and more aware of opportunities when the Lord says, say it, speak. Sometimes you'll have those opportunities and it will open and you can go. Other times those doors were closed. I was reading this week about Warren Wearsby, one of my favorite uh, commentators and just a great godly man. I've had the privilege of, of meeting him on a couple different occasions. And he was talking about an opportunity that he thought was opening up for him to share the gospel. He was actually in a courtroom where he'd been brought in to um, testify as a character witness in a child custody case, someone that he had been ministering to. And the question was asked, Warren Wearsby, this. He says, Reverend, do you think the man, do you think a man who has been in prison is fit to raise a child? Well, Warren Wearsby automatically thought, well, this is a courtroom and there's an opportunity that's opening up. And he says, well, that depends on the man. 
He says some of the greatest men in history have been prisoners. John the Baptist, John Bunyan, even the Apostle Paul. To which the judge very curtly said, just answer the question, yes or no. <laughs> Warren Wiersbe writes, at that time I knew my sermon had ended. In a sense, always looking for an opportunity. The Lord will make it very clear. It will open or it will close. We see here that a window of opportunity opens up for Paul actually to address the crowds. Paul, standing on the steps, it says in chapter 21, verse 40, motions with his hands to the people. This is a chaotic scene. And when there was a great hush... He addressed them. Notice he says as well that they, he addressed them in the, the, the Hebrew language. Not only was Paul a student and a scholar of Greek, but he speaks in Hebrew as well. He has no problem quieting the entire crowd down. They want to hear this man and what he has to say. We won't take the time to read everything, but all the way through chapter 22 is what? Two portions. His story... And his savior. Paul tells about my story. He says, you know, I was I was born a Jew. I was brought up and I was educated and I was zealous. And yet something happened to me. And he goes back to his testimony in Acts chapter nine. That that what he was reading threatenings and slaughter heading to Damascus and he was knocked from his horse. There was a conversion. The Holy Spirit, excuse me, Jesus Christ arrives in a sense, in blindness, and calls Paul to ministry. And he speaks of his passion for ministry and his purpose in all of life. I thought, you know what? Every single one of us have a story. Perhaps, you know, we weren't knocked from a horse and it was a bright light and we were blinded, but every single one of us, if you have received the Lord Jesus, have a story, a testimony. We have a responsibility to share that. It doesn't have to be this well incredible. It may have. The story is what? I used to be that. I once was lost. But now I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He found me and saved me and redeemed me. Just like Paul literally just talks about the fact what of his own story of what God has done in his life. You and I need to regularly do that when that window of opportunity opens up. Not only does he tell a story, but he speaks what? Of his Savior. He always makes a straight and a short line to Christ. In telling his story, he mentions specifically about this one man, Ananias. Remember, all the way back in Acts 9, who has this incredible impact. And, and Ananias said to him, the God of our fathers appointed you. Paul's telling this story. There was a man and he saw me and he knew me and he said to me that God has appointed me to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear a voice. Verses 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 22. And then what does Ananias say? For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. Paul's just telling his story. He's just sharing his testimony. As he begins to share about that, he immediately says, why do you wait? In verse 16 of Acts 22, he actually begins to challenge those that he's speaking to. He's on the steps, quiets the crowd, speaks about his own story, speaks about his own Savior, and now challenges them. And he says to the crowd, what are you waiting for? 
rise and be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on His name. Great opportunity to say, at this very moment, God is speaking to you. And in verse 22 of Acts chapter 22, Paul says how God spoke to him and said, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. And then it says that they raised their voices and said, Away with such a man, such a fellow from this earth. What's interesting is Paul's sharing his own story. He's sharing his own Savior when he, in a sense, tells about his own calling to minister to the Gentiles. That's when the crowd boils up, broils so much that they say, We don't want it. We don't hear it. We despise those people so much. Oh, how the world will hate to hear a message of truth. But we, just like Paul, are still called to speak it. Fourthly, we see that Paul is accused of blasphemy. We see that he's threatened and he's escorted to Caesarea. A lot of details in this. But Paul simply is accused of what? Of blaspheming the temple area. As a result of that, they want him dead. And because of that, there's actually a plot to assassinate him where he is snuck out in the middle of the night with hundreds of armed soldiers that are escorting him. What is kind of interesting about this scene here is that people can accuse all they want, as they do with Paul. People can threaten all they want, but ultimately, they must resign to the fact, just like Paul and with you and I, we are His. We belong to the Lord. Literally, physically, every area of us. We belong to the Lord. There's actually points throughout the story of Acts that you, have, you, you can't do anything else but laugh at, at people's response, at man's response to God's people when they just don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to handle him. For example, the, the Jews had arrested Paul. They were convinced that he had blasphemed, that he had broken the ceremonial laws. What's interesting is that he didn't. He'd gone through every legitimate step for seven days of ritualistic cleansing. He's a Jewish person. He is allowed to be there. He did everything right. They thought this, but it was wrong. They hand to the Romans, the Romans just doing their job. They arrest him. They begin to ask him questions because in all honesty, they still think he's somebody else. They think he's an Egyptian terrorist. When he begins to speak to the crowd, he speaks with what? With this, with this powerful presentation of the truth of the gospel, revealing that he's no terrorist. This man is brilliant. He's been schooled and trained by the very best. Then there's a scene as well that they actually move him from the Romans to a particular centurion. It says in verse 26 of Acts chapter 22 that they were going to examine Paul by flogging. What that means is beat him until he tells us we, we want to hear, basically. And so the very detail... In verse 26 of Acts 22, when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul asked the centurion, 
Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? It's almost humorous in the fact that he literally is being stretched out. And there's a muscled centurion ready to beat him, to whip him. And Paul leans over his shoulder and says, Excuse me, could I just ask you one question? Are you allowed to do this to a Roman citizen? The guy is completely confused. He says, what? He said, yeah, if, if you listened to me earlier, I was born a Jew in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus, the capital city of Cilicia. Almost as if he's speaking to the Roman centurion. Uh, Paul says, just want to remind you, Cilicia is, is a Roman province. I'm one of you. A pause. Cilicia, 250 miles straight north. Perhaps you've been there before. Think of that. The centurion at that moment literally does not know what to do. And so he passed them on to a tribune. In a sense, the centurion's boss. In verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, it says that the tribune was afraid because he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him. You almost look at this whole scene and begin to say, this is just absolutely a chaotic mess as it continues to unfurl. Uh, verse 30 of Acts 22, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, they unbound him. They commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The high priest Ananias answered those who stood by him to strike him, or told those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And you, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the others were Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. When it said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Romans don't know what to do with them. The Jews don't know what to do with them. They're literally arguing amongst themselves about this guy. And then he said, well, we have to do this out of respect for the Pharisees. And Paul says, yeah, well, I'm a Pharisee as well. God's man, God's people simply do not fit in this world. We don't make sense. As we reveal what God has done in our lives, as we just simply tell the story of God's redemption. And I think the greatest verse of the entire portion is in verse 11 when they take him back to the barracks. They take him back. He is chained. And there is this absolute touching scene that that rises to the very top of if we remember nothing else today, we remember this. Acts 23 and verse 11. The following night, and I love this, the Lord stood by him. Paul, having been yanked and tossed, literally carried from place to place, chained up in prison, and the Lord stood by him and said, Take 
courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God literally arrives and tells Paul, comforts Paul, says this, however dark it may look, it's not the end of the journey for you. As much as everyone in this whole area wanted him dead, wanted him dead, God says, you're going on to Rome. You can be assured of that. What an amazing portion of the story that says, when we give our heart and our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are his. It's interesting, again, with this plot to assassinate Paul, verses 23 and 24. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So they move from Jerusalem in the middle of the night. He is escorted safely to Caesarea where he will stand before now Felix the governor. Fifthly and finally at that moment, Paul answers his critics with the truth of the gospel. Always, chapter 24, after a litany of accusations, after a long list of complaints against this one man, Paul, He is, in a sense, standing before Felix. Ananias, the high priest, is there. In a sense, Ananias is the ultimate, how do you say it politely, kiss up to Felix, the governor. It says, we found this man to be a plague. We found him to be a a ringleader. We found him to try to profane the temple. And this this Jewish leader is just trying to, to add anything, to pin anything he can on Paul. What is interesting in verses 25 and 26 and 27, that, that after a period of time, there's a clear description of Felix saying that this man is going to remain here and you won't be able to touch him. After a, a rather long period of time and conversation, it says this, that, that Felix had an accurate understanding or knowledge of the way. As Paul was giving a defense of the gospel, Felix is like, I've I've heard that before. He knows about the story of the gospel. And they said that they're going to keep him in custody with some liberty so that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. Felix and his wife, Drusilla, a Jew, sent for Paul and actually heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus in righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. And Paul has continued opportunities just to speak the, the light of the gospel into the darkest of situations. Amazing to see in these last couple verses that the, continue, that the gospel will continue to go forward. I don't know exactly, but the governor is just perplexed by this. He doesn't really know what to do. It, it, the entire thing ends in chapter 24. It says, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left him in prison. It's in a sense how the scene closes, how the curtains are drawn. And God's man is simply left in the stench and the darkness of imprisonment. 
Do, do you see it? Do you see that Paul doesn't fit any more than you and I don't fit? When you feel like you're somewhat of an oddity in this world, people don't get me, they don't get our story, they don't understand our testimony. Why is it that in the middle of a storm we come out to worship and sing songs together? Why is it we don't belong? Do you see as well God's assurance in the midst of hardship? When God stood by him and said, Take comfort, have courage, be strong. It's not over yet. Do you see as well that the gospel continues to go forward? Every single opportunity to speak, Paul takes advantage of that. He's sensitive and aware. You and I are too as well. When God directs us to a person and we pray, Lord, give me the right words, the door will open. You speak or the door will close and you can't speak. You're that sensitive so that as Paul, even in harshness, even in hardship, we know very clearly what our calling is because we, like Paul, are what? Prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been captured by his love and our heart is held captive out of gratitude and out of love for what he's done for us. Good reminder, a lot of, a lot of space to cover in a short period of time, but hopefully you get a survey of these couple key chapters of Paul's arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem and in Caesarea. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for who you are and I thank you for the reminder from Scripture of what you have called us to, to be. You've called us, in a sense, to be prisoners of you. Lord, we thank you that, that you capture our hearts and that we have the opportunity now to love and to serve and to speak just like Paul did. Help us, Lord, to have boldness in that, to have courage and confidence in times of uncertainty or darkness. I thank you, Lord, for the tenaciousness of Paul, but also, Lord, for the sensitivity that he has in caring and loving and speaking to and praying for and even weeping over the souls of those who are lost. God, help us to do the same. In your name we pray. Amen. Just stay with us.